Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. My name is Tammy Edwards, and I am the Vice President of Community Development and Strategic Engagements here at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's program, Building Ladders and Raising the Floor, Improving Employment and Economic Opportunities for Frontline Workers. In addition, in addition to welcoming those of you here in Kansas City, I'd also like to welcome those who are joining us via nine watch parties that are being hosted around the country. The watch parties are being hosted in two of our three Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City branches, uh, our Denver branch and our branch in Omaha, in addition to six Federal Reserve Bank branches across the country in, in Atlanta, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Dallas, El Paso, and Nashville. And a watch party is also being hosted in New York City by the Financial Clinic. And we're also live streaming. So since you know, you, especially those of you here in Kansas City, City since you know that you're going to be uh, live stream across the country, if you shouldn't be here today, <laughs> maybe you should be out of the camera's range because it, it might catch you. Um, this is a, it, it's being live streamed across the country, so I'm just warning you in case Steve hasn't already done so. But here at the Kansas City Fed, our uh, community development mission is to utilize our research, our programming, and our resources to explore and address the community and economic development challenges that face underserved communities in the seven states that we serve. Our research and programming is focused on five primary focus areas, community development investments, small business development, community um, uh, neighborhood stabilization, financial health, and of course, workforce development. Our workforce development focus area is our newest of the five. And as many of you know, it is a large and complex field that touches on many issues. It has been very exciting over the last few years to, to really see all 12 Federal Reserve Bank work on different aspects of workforce development. While our bank has been involved in many workforce development activities, our primary focus has been on today's topics. How do we and how can we improve the quality of jobs and economic opportunities that they present for lower income and lower wage workers? We look forward to the insights that all of you will bring to this topic through today's discussions. You will inform our work as well as create new ideas and connections through discussions and the networking that will occur here in Kansas City and at our watch parties. Thanks to all who, is, who have worked very hard on this program. I, I, I tell the team all the time that it takes a village to do all the work that we do, and we are so appreciative of, of all who helped to make today's program a, a success. I also would like to thank uh, in advance our three um, wonderful panelists and uh, our fabulous moderator, who I'm very partial to since he's, and I know he'll be introduced later, but John Willis, who is our partner in crime here at the Federal Reserve Bank and one of our premier economists, and who is always willing and able to help us do what we do. And so I thank John in advance as well. Uh, let me now introduce uh, Vicki 
Coits of the Aspen Institute to provide some framing remarks about today's program and the panel. The Aspen Institute has been a great partner of ours for many years, and um, in particular, they really worked with us on a series of roundtables that we hosted with community and business leaders throughout our seven states. And they really helped us frame those, uh, those roundtables so that we could have better insights into the work that we should be doing in workforce development. We are excited to continue the partnership um, with the Aspen in Institute, and uh, we know that this is a part of their ongoing Working in America series. Vicki is the Associate Director of Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute, where she provides strategic research and leadership for initiatives that help low-income Americans gain ground in today's labor market. Her primary focus is on improving both the quality of low-wage jobs and career advancement opportunities as a key strategy for addressing and deepening the economic inequality in America. Before I welcome uh, Vicki to the stage, I also would like to uh, have a shout out to two of our community, to the Federal Reserve Banks, so our Board of Governors, uh, two of the members of our Community Advisory Council. This is a council that the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in, Kansas, in, in uh, D.C. formed uh, about two years ago, and it's 15 members on the board from across the country. Two of those 15 members are from our district, and we have we have three members on the, on the particular council from our district, and two of them are here with us today. And so I, I would like uh, Duke and Adrian um, to stand and wave their hands. And uh, if, you, if you want to get some information back to the Board of Governors, those are the two people you see, and they'll take it right back to, to, to Washington. But thank you for all the work that you do on behalf of our district and behalf of the Federal Reserve um, Board of Governors. So with that, Vicki, I'm going to turn the program over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Edwards, for that uh, very warm welcome. I really appreciate that. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program, I welcome you to our Working in America public discussion series on the changing nature of work. We are very excited to be partnering with the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank on today's discussion focused on how we, all of us as practitioners, researchers, policymakers, staff, advocates, employers, and labor, among others, should support and promote both economic stability for workers, the raise the floor part uh, of our mission, in addition to economic mobility, building ladders uh, for individuals. The Aspen Institute, for those of you who might not be familiar, is a nonpartisan policy studies and leadership development nonprofit organization. We provide a forum for developing successful approaches to critical public policy challenges in our country. Within the Aspen Institute, the Economic Opportunities Program explores promising policies, practices, and strategies for helping low- and moderate-income individuals connect to and thrive in a changing economy, such as the dynamic economy that we have today. We do this work through applied research, leadership development, and dialogue, such as today's Working in America event that you all are a part of. 
We're grateful to our supporters of this series, which include multiple foundations, including the Ford Foundation, F.B. Heron, Hitachi, Charles Stewart Mott, Prudential, and Walmart Foundations. Uh, and you can learn more about our Working in America series. We do about four to five events a year at as.pn backslash working in America. Now, Ms. Edwards talks about all the different audiences that we have today here. We've got our live audience, we've got watch parties, we've got individuals watching this at their desks, so welcome to all of you. Uh, in addition, we will be recording this event, so don't catch yourself on the recording if you're not supposed to be here. Uh, and we'll also be creating highlight clips uh, of it. So you can watch this, uh, what's going to be a fantastic panel, over and over again in the comfort of your own home and share it with your friends. Um, today's conversation will include three parts. First, we'll have a moderated discussion with our panelists. Then we will open it up to you, our audience, both here in the house as well as virtually to, uh, to engage with us. And if you have a question here in Kansas City, raise your hand. A microphone will come to you. Please use the microphone out of respect for your virtual audience colleagues so that way they can hear your question. Uh, and for those of you uh, out in, in the, the virtual audience, um, there will be a telephone number on the screen that you can text your question to. Uh, we're re really using all the technology we can here today at this event. Um, and then the third part of our discussion today will be after our panel discussion, uh, at least here in Kansas City, and I believe many of the watch parties around the country, will be engaging in small group discussions, because we want to really bring this home and talk about the opportunities to improve job quality right here in our own regions. Uh, and the conversation continues. Um, this Thursday, we will be hosting a Twitter chat. How many of you are on Twitter out there? Okay, well, I hope that you will join us for this Twitter chat that we are doing on Thursday, October 27th, 3.30 Eastern Time, where we will be continuing this conversation and talking about some of the same issues. Uh, for those of you who have registered for this event, you'll be getting information in your email right after today's event. Um, and uh, all you'll need to do is follow the hashtag TalkGoodJobs, which you can actually use today to tweet about today's event if you want. It's on the, the back, uh, background screen there. Um, so use that today. And, and by the way, while you have your phones out, would you turn them on silent, please? Uh, that was a lot of housekeeping, more than I usually like to do. So let's get on to today's topic, shall we? Um, why are we having this conversation today? Because work is central to most people's livelihoods in this country. And it has been the cornerstone of the American dream. It's been the source of opportunity. It's a big part of how we define ourselves personally and as Americans. But how we value work particularly work at the lower end of the wage spectrum, has drifted from our American values. Those values are equal opportunity. They're values of if you work full time, you should not be living in poverty. The value of children being able to do as well as or better than their parents economically. 
the values of dignity and the values of respect. We have averted our eyes from persistent and growing poverty level work that holds people back, that squanders much needed talent in this country, that puts a drag on our economy by stifling consumers, which is never a good idea in a consumer-driven economy. It keeps the American dream out of reach for too many, and it threatens the economic success of the next generation. As we've been looking away, economic stability in America has eroded, and that flies in the face of our American values. We've written about this in the Economic Opportunities Program over the last few years. We've brought a couple of our reports, uh, which you can find on the materials table in the corner of the room back there, along with many other excellent resources from the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, feel free to pick those materials up. But today, we want to hear from people around the country who are helping America reclaim the value of work by helping working people connect to economic stability. They are living the values uh, of America by providing workers with a stable foundation of economic stability. So now I'd like to welcome our panelists up here. Lisa Falcone, if you just want to come on up, folks, and we'll get you settled in your, your armchairs here. Uh, I'm not going to... Uh, go through their entire bios because they're in your packets. But we have Lisa Falcone, who's the director of Working Bridges Project in the United Way of Northwest Vermont. We have Adrian Smith, who is the chief executive officer of the New Mexico Direct Caregivers Coalition. We have Walter Smith, no relation to Adrian, uh, <laughs> who is the uh, vice president of human resources at Quick Trip. And we have our moderator, John Willis, Vice President and Economist of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Please give them a warm round of applause, and I'll turn it over to John. Great. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to be the moderator for this panel discussion. And I'd like to kick things off with a few minutes of com comments just to set the stage on our conversation about jobs and on the importance of financial stability and economic mobility. So in terms of my comments, are going to focus on the changing landscape that we've seen in the labor market, in particular, thinking about how jobs have shifted over the past 40 years. So to do this, it's kind of helpful to illustrate it by think of classifying jobs into three very broad categories. So the first category is high-skilled jobs. Think of those as jobs that typically take a bachelor's degree or higher and are broadly in the professional managerial occupations. So that's high-skilled job. Next up, take middle-skilled jobs. And this is the, the broad swath of jobs that we typically think of as the middle class that encompasses everything from sales, office support positions, construction, manufacturing, transportation, repair, that big chunk of middle-class middle jobs I'll call middle-skilled jobs. And then we want to think also of the third category is going to be low-skilled jobs, which are primarily service occupations that we think of in terms of um, food services, cleaning, personal care, and um, security occupations. 
So in terms of that wide class of jobs, what we want to do is think about over the past 30 years, there's been a broad shift where the middle skill jobs have largely declined over time, and that's been driven by a large range of changes in the economy from technology to seeing uh, outsourcing of jobs overseas to seeing declines in kind of traditional middle class jobs like manufacturing. What's not surprising to you in this audience is as the middle skill jobs have declined, high skill jobs have increased. But what's less well known is that those low-skill jobs are also increasing. So it's this phenomenon where we see the middle-skill jobs going over time to high-skill and low-skilled. That's a term we call job polarization. And this is a key thing because this is something that also adds to the conversation about impacting incomes and wages, particularly for the lower 60% of households. So one of the key pieces when we talk about low-income growth is the fact that the opportunities workers in those households face today are less than they had 30 years ago, where typically they would have more opportunities in the past for middle-skill jobs. And if they're not finding those opportunities, which are diminishing, they're typically having to go to lower-skill positions. So I'm just going to show a few charts to illustrate this. So first up, um, in terms of, oh, my, my uh, fonts didn't show up so well. So I'm going to just describe the pictures. So if you look at the blue region, what the blue region is showing in 1983 versus 2016, that blue region is showing the middle skill jobs have gone from about 60% to 40%. And you can actually see it better on this one. So if you start on the left in 1979, this is research that I've done with my colleague Dietam Tuzman here at the bank. So 1979, these are orange is low skill jobs, blue is middle skill jobs. Green are the high-skilled jobs. And you see back then, that blue was about 60% of all jobs. That was the middle class. That's where it was. And you see the decline that's coming over time in terms of this gradual erosion from the point where middle skill was 60% of jobs. Now it's 45%. So you notice on the top, the green region's growing. That's where we know high-skilled jobs. There's more opportunities there. But notice on the bottom, it's that orange region. Those low-skill occupations are also growing in terms of the share. So this is stepping back from population changing size, just the share of jobs are now up to about 20% in low-skilled. So as we go into this conversation, these low-skilled jobs are needed for our society. They are important for our society to operate, and they're going to continue to be around. But this shift also shows, as the new generation's coming out, the opportunities at the end in 19, or 2016 look very different than the opportunities you would see in 1980. And in terms of thinking about the wages, this chart is just showing what's happened to relative wages. I'm not going to put actual numbers on it, but if you think about the comparison to the average person, what you're seeing is that the blue wage in the middle, the middle skill occupation, it's showing your relative wage to that person. It's near one. So you're in your middle skill job. On average, you're getting that average pay. If you get to the high skill occupation, as we measure them in the data, you earn about 50% more than average. And then if you're in that low-skilled occupation, your wage is about 50% less. So this lines up with what we typically think. The thing that my colleague and I found when we did this research that's surprising is these relative wages have stayed very constant over time in terms of the comparisons. So this is another piece that if you think about the topics of income inequality, there's lots of conversations in the role of one percenters. But another key piece is here, just the, those middle jobs used to be 60%. Now it's 45%. The options of going up or down, that's another contributor to income inequality. So in terms of also to provide a little bit of landscape in terms of wages, we, we're right now in a low-wage environment. What are some of the contributors? What this chart is showing is the blue bars are showing over different periods of time productivity growth. 
So productivity in, in this context is how much output does a person produce? And as we measure over time, if people on average are producing more output than the year before at a faster rate, that contributes to higher wage growth. So you see in the periods in the 70s to the mid-90s, labor productivity growth was about 1.5% per year, people producing a little bit more. That correlated with about 1% real wage growth after you take away inflation. We had a period in the mid-90s to mid-2000s. The output per worker went up much faster. That also correlated with higher wages. And then the place we're at now, just in terms of the data, we're unfortunately back in this low productivity. So economists are talking a lot. A lot of people are trying to figure out how do we boost labor productivity, which we're looking for. But the facts are, in a low productivity environment, wage growth tends to be low. So the last chart I want to show before we get the discussion started is what does this mean, particularly for the 60% the of households that are at the lower end of the income spectrum? So the black bars on this chart are showing the average wage growth from the previous chart over different periods. We had a low wage period, high wage growth period, and low wage growth period. And then what I'm showing you with the colored bars are I'm grouping households into groups uh, of quintiles. So the red bar is the average household growth for those in the 0 to 20th percentile in household income, so the lowest group. Orange is the next group, so those are households that earn somewhere between the 20th and 40th percentile in income. And then yellow is 40th to 60. So this is accounting for 60% of households in, the, in those buckets. And you see quick, quickly see the pattern is that all of those groups are growing less than the black bars. And in particular, even in periods where there was faster wage growth in the 1990s to mid-2000s, it didn't trickle down. It didn't get to these other groups in terms of the households. So this is, again, the conditions. There's lots of explanations. But the one I also want to just use in kicking out the conversation is this is where you see the pressure of opportunities shifting as jobs are shifting. The people that might have been typically in a middle skill occupation are now finding themselves at 20 years later, that next group, in a lower skilled one. Okay. So with that, I want to turn it to our moderators that are going to tell us more. I, I look at data. They're hands-on and going to tell their experiences. So I'd like to kick it off with Lisa. So you're on the front lines of this issue in Northwest Vermont. So I want you to tell us about your experience in working. Why did the United Way begin this initiative that they're working on, and what do you, what do, you do sure, in terms of your sure. practice? Thank you. So thank you for having me here today in Kansas City. Um, as John mentioned, um, I'm here from Vermont, uh, where I run a program called Working Bridges. I work for the United Way of Northwest Vermont, and you're all probably thinking, well, what does the United Way have to do with workforce development? Um, I will say this is the issue of the day in terms of United Way understanding that uh, people meeting their basic needs and um, ability for their families to have family supporting uh, wages and income is really, really critical to our organization. So I'm going to give you the two-second or two-minute, maybe, uh, overview of who we are and why we do what we do. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, we in, in Burlington, uh, we wanted to end poverty. We were really trying to start. that stepped up and said, hey, what you're talking about, uh, issues of lack of resources, ability uh, to meet your basic needs, transportation, childcare, all of those issues are getting in the way of work. And people are working in our workplaces that need, um, that we're, we're seeing a high rate of turnover. 
We're seeing uh, other issues uh, crop up, such as unscheduled time off, because people with limited resources are having a hard time dealing with those issues. So from that, Working Bridges was born, and that's what I do, is I facilitate uh, a group of employers who came together, um, are investing in the idea that we need to make work uh, better for all of our employees, uh, including those at the lower wage um, spectrum. I do want to say in Vermont, um, you probably know we're one of the more progressive states in the country. We do have a minimum wage uh, as of January 2016 um, that is $9.60 an hour. We focus on working with employers that um, have a workforce in the uh, range of $10 to $19 an hour. And what we've done is put together, and we're a business collaborative, we have put together many strategies to help uh, coming from the business perspective, really with the idea that we can help support uh, employees in that, in that income uh, range, uh, keep a job, get a job, keep a job, and advance in a job. So that's the perspective that I'm gonna bring today. Thanks. All right, so Walter, so Quick Trip is a company many people in this room are familiar with. There's one four blocks from my house, so I know right. Quick Trip. But could you, for those in the audience um, that aren't, are in other parts of the country, could you share a little bit of the story of Quick Trip, how it came about, uh, and tell, tell that story? So for everybody who lives here locally, uh, you know, we have tons of stores here, so I feel like we're already connected. You kind of know who we are and what we're about. Um, it, it was odd when I was asked to actually come, I was thinking, well, what does a retailer have to do with what you all, what we are trying to do as a community, right? Because I think uh, our employees and myself included as living in the communities that we work in. So if that's the case, then it is relevant that we would be here and hopefully we're a template or we are what other businesses would try to model and say, hey, I think they're doing something right. Maybe, you know, we should connect with them and figure out what's, what's the magic, what's in the secret sauce of what they do. So we started in 1958, and I've been around 26 years with Quick Trip. So this is about the only job I've really known. Um, and it's been a great career. People always ask me, well, why do you stay around? I mean, what's, what's the reason you've been here so long? And I was asked that question directly about a year ago, and I really thought, you know, it still feels like a family environment. You know, we have over 20,000 employees. We're in 11 states. We have nine markets. You know, we, when I got there, it was about 4,500 employees. Now we got over 21,000, and I just love working for the family. And if you talk to other people throughout um, any, well, for example, our CEO and COO tonight are having dinner with our folks in St. Louis to celebrate their anniversaries uh, for how long they've been with the company. That connection, along with other things we'll talk about today, is what what makes it feel important for employees and why they hang around and why they stick with you, which is why I've been there for uh, you know, 26 years also. So we're a 58-year-old company. We're made up of about 60% of our, our workforce are full-timers and 40% are part-timers. Our part-timers are predominantly high school kids, college kids trying to work their way through. And sometimes we just have um, spouses who just need the, the insurance or the benefits. And so we're fine with that too. So we want to try to fit as much of that as we can as we, as we move forward. Great, thank you. Adrian, you run a state-level coalition to support direct care workers and consumers. So can you tell us a little more about what the coalition is trying to achieve, why this is so important, and what you do? 
So we started in 2009 with a little money from a state agency for, that advocated for people with developmental disabilities. They wanted to know if there was the voice of a caregiver out there in New Mexico. Um, and a few years later, we've grown into an organization that serves caregivers all across the spectrum, uh, people who work with um, children and adults with developmental disabilities, but also those who work with uh, seniors and people who are elderly. As a result, I think the second part of our mission is to help improve the lives of those that the caregivers care for. When I use the term caregivers, um, I mean the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics, occupational codes uh, known in states all, all across the country as the home health aide, the personal care assistant, the nurses, attendants, and orderlies. These are the frontline you know, direct care workers, the people who really know the patients. Um, in our state, they make about 9.50 an hour, and that's not the bottom of the totem pole uh, by any means. That's probably about average in the country. Um, and if they can get into better jobs, they can make about uh, $19 an hour. So that's the equivalent. The folks that we're dealing with are making an equivalent of about 18,000 a year, whereas they could be making about 40,000 a year, which is more like what it takes to get by in our state of New Mexico. Thank you. Lisa, you touched on some of the challenges that lower income workers in your region face, which kind of spurred you to launch the United Way initiative, Working Bridges. So can you tell us more about what you're seeing and how people are faring in today's economy and the employment context that they face? Sure, sure. So um, let me start by saying uh, I checked the unemployment rate of Vermont before um, I came here, and it's at 3.3%, which when you think about that, you think, we're one of the best in, in the country. Um, what, what we know through Working Bridges and the employers we're working with, uh, the issue uh, for many, many workers is the fact that they are struggling to make a, an, a livable wage, a wage that supports their basic needs. And so part of what we do is um, we work with uh, directly in workplaces where we we put people in there to work directly uh, with the employees to help them get the resources that they, they need. And um, sometimes it has to do with, I, I mentioned uh, transportation and childcare earlier, but there's also issues like housing. Housing is our number one issue. Uh, financial stability, just all of the issues that come with uh, making, making the household uh, budget work. And sometimes that uh, is really difficult for people who are in lower wage jobs because they don't have the credit, they don't have, uh, they may be unbanked. So those issues are real issues for workers. And why does that matter to an employer? Because again, so much of what uh, these workers are faced with uh, potentially can disrupt their ability to be at work, be present at work, and be productive at work. So that is really, um, where we spend a lot of our time. Uh, we have these people, literally I call them angels, uh, who go into the workplace and work directly on these issues. And it's paid for by employers, it's an investment of the employer, who really want to advance their uh, workforce, uh, make sure that they're, uh, the, the research done by the Aspen Institute, Institute is about 
creating stability as the foundation. And that's really what this model is, making sure people are stable both in their uh, personal lives so that they can get to work and they're uh, more stable and have that stability at work. So that's why employers are investing in it. I also want to mention uh, one of the things that we are more along the workforce development line, what we have found is that we need to start focusing on issues uh, uh, around training that are shared across employers. For example, GEDs or people hiring people without a GED. But yet to promote somebody, they need a GED to or a high school equivalency uh, diploma to be able to move to a higher level job. So, so again, one of the things we're trying to do is share uh, training across these uh, different employers so that not one employer has to figure out how to do that, how to bring classes on site. We do everything at the workplace. Another example of that is English learning language for new Americans. So those are the kind of things that we're seeing that are getting in the way of work. Um, both from accessing resources to this more traditional workforce development kind of training. Great. Adrian, on the same question in terms of challenges facing low workers today, what are you seeing in, in New Mexico and how are direct care workers faring in today's economy with today's employment options? So back when we started, we didn't have a clue of what was important to caregivers and the issues they were facing. So we went out to eight different communities across the state and asked them what their challenges were, what the issues were, and we found out things that wouldn't surprise you. Um, wages, benefits were important. It surprised me to no end that that was not the first thing that was important to them. They said that they wanted their voice to be heard. They wanted to know that the suggestions they put in the suggestion box were read and acted upon if that were possible. Um, they also said what was interesting to me that when I asked about advocacy and things that we could do in terms of public policy that would affect their lives, um, they began talking almost immediately about the uh, care recipients that they cared for. And so this is why I get up to go to work the next day. It's because of these people. Um, but I find that the ways they're being affected nonetheless is we, um, they often have to work two to three jobs just to make ends meet. And so that cuts down on any time that they would have with their own family. They also told us, in, interestingly, that there are issues of transportation, which I'm sure exist here, particularly in rural areas, that um, can keep people from getting to work. And um, those, are, those are solutions that we don't necessarily have the answer for, um, but somebody out there does. So those are some of the things to answer your question. Thank you very much. And, and Walter, I'd love to have you add in on this from Quick Trip, the perspective of Quick Trip. Yeah, it's comments interesting because we actually try to structure our jobs and our wages so that our employees don't have to work multiple jobs. And so we want the wage to be high enough that they can afford the things in life that any of us would want. And that takes a lot of hard work. You know, Chester started that. He's our, our founder uh, many, many years ago. Um, but it takes, it takes asking your employees and sometimes not liking the answer. Uh, that's the reason we started the benefits program that we have today is because we went out and asked them. They said, well, why don't you have health insurance? We were, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> we don't know why we don't have health insurance. But it's, it's talking to our folks and being okay with the answer, even though it may butt up against how we believe or how we think as a company. And then we say, how can we do that and still remain profitable? Great. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so to continue with you, Walter, so QuickTrip has been rec recognized for its good job practices. It's been written up in a Harvard um, case study. There's a, a book that touts it called The Good Job Strategy, among others. So can you talk a little more about how QuickTrip is providing or influencing better quality jobs? You know, this started, and I'll go back to um, Chester, and he wrote a book, and it was really, really eye-opening for a lot of folks who were within QuickTrip who really didn't understand the stories uh, from the beginning of how we were built. And one of the things he's always pointed out was he wanted QuickTrip to be a place that employees could be proud to say they worked at. That, that's hard, okay? Because we're a convenience store, we sell gasoline. So what would it be, what would we do different that would make employees say, I love working at QuickTrip, right? And then number two, he thought that the wage should be such that employees can afford a house. Now that's an old fashioned notion, right? I, I know a lot of people don't, you know, it's the American dream. It's what, what, all, what all is involved in getting you there and uh, how you treat people and how you pay them are probably the two of the most important things that I learned from him and through his book um, is, is so important to employees, but that's what really pushes us philosophically. As long as we are trying to say and trying to act on our employees being the most important thing to the business, because we believe that we'll get everything back out of it if we do that. Um, that's what pushes us forward, and that is a never-ending, uh, I would say, work. <laughs> never-ending piece of work that, that is just a continuum, never stops. So just to follow up, so what you described does seem like a whole different way of doing business than most convenience stores that we typically encounter. So how does this good job strategy kind of fit into your overall business model, and how do you kind of see that, approach that model, and how it's different from your competition? You know, it's, uh, so we used to have these old stories. They're like legends that, that ran around, and people used to tell Chester, hey, quit telling our competition what it takes to be successful. <laughs> and he actually would sit with them because they'd say, hey, how are you doing it? What are you guys doing that's so different? And he would just say, well, we, we train our people really well, and we pay them well. And when they ask us questions, we, ask, we answer the questions. We tell them the whys. Um, and if you're going to make it a place that people are proud to work at, then it has to be clean, right? You have to show that you actually support them. You know, somebody uh, made the comment about, you know, my suggestions going to the suggestion box, and then I never hear back. Uh, and it's important us to tell our employees why, even if it's no or not for now. We want to tell them why. And so those are some of the things. Those are small things that I think that over long periods of time, employees can, can start to count on you. And if they can count on you, then you can count on them. And so that's kind of the back and forth trade that we have. Thank you. So Lisa, you work with employers and their employees every day. Mm -hmm. How do you approach this when you go up to employers and you start trying to start a conversation about the quality of jobs? Do you find openness, resistance? Sure. First, I want Walter to be one of my um, employers because he has the, the right attitude about how to approach uh, these issues. Um, so let me just remind you that this is not the United Way or some community service person coming in to tell employers what to do. Our, our mission really is about employer to employer sharing best practices and ideas and thinking about the issues that are getting in the way of work together. And then coming up, I always say we test things. We, we come up with them. We design them. We test them. And then we pilot them. And if they work, we share them. If they don't work, we you know, throw it out the window. And um, so your question, John, uh, is, it's one that I um, think about a lot. Because when we were in the, in the world of looking at retention, uh, we were very, very much in a place where people wanted to work together. But when we talk about advancement, and maybe to advance, you have to go to another 
or move out, then uh, that became a little trickier. But again, um, so what we do, we, we have these things called innovation labs where we really look at the issues that are getting in the way of work, what, what uh, lower wage workers are experiencing, both from the employer perspective and from the employee perspective. And um, it's a good old fashioned, humble collaborative where we try to work on the issues together. So I'm lucky, I have 11 employers and then some who are really invested in this model and trying to uh, do this work because they know it's good for their business as well as the community as a whole. Great. Adrian, on the same question, how do you, how do you try and achieve change in terms of improving the quality of jobs for direct care workers? So there are three things that I think this audience would be interested in. Um, one is we do what we call a customized training for caregivers. We find that caregivers by and large um, are, get the training that they need when they go into an agency on how to fill out timesheets and uh, how to follow protocol and procedure within the business, but they're really not shown or taught how to properly care for a care recipient. And when and if they are, they're certainly not shown how to do so in a way that keeps them from getting hurt as caregivers. So we don't want our own caregivers to have a back hurting, right, at 50, 60 years old when we need their help. Um, so we're doing a customized training and we help, we talk to employers about how we can come to them at no cost to them for the moment and help train their workforce. But uh, uh, two other things come to mind. We're, um, we're really good at just taking good ideas like this raise the floor, build the ladder notion. And we're hosting an event like this in New Mexico on November 16th in which we're going to ask caregivers themselves to respond to a good jobs code. A good jobs code. What are the things that make up uh, the characteristics, the qualities, the principles of a good job? And we actually just took that from one of the handouts on the table back here uh, at this conference. It just, and you'll see in, in the margins over there, it says, what are some of the characteristics of good jobs? Well, we want to build our own in New Mexico, like everybody wants to build their own in their own state and locality. Uh, but we started from there. Uh, the third thing that I think you might be interested to know is we wrote for and won a USDA uh, rural development grant and started a cooperative. So we figured there would be no better example than caregivers owning, operating, managing, deciding on governance, deciding on pay um, about the company than if it were owned and run by caregivers. So that has just begun. Uh, two weeks ago, we opened the door. And uh, you won't be surprised that the wages that they've established, uh, the caregivers themselves have established, are a little bit more than 9.50 an hour. And so uh, we'll see how that goes. I, I have lots of hope for that. Great. Okay, so for our next topic, talk a little bit about government policy. So we've seen recently seen some policy changes, so at the federal, state, and local level in terms of the whole range, that are addressing and trying to improve stability and quality of jobs. So at, at the highest level, the Obama administration has issued executive orders to increase the minimum wage and provide paid leave for government contractors. The Department of Labor this year has expanded the scope of employees who are eligible for overtime pay. Several states have increased their minimum wage and adopted paid leave policies. And some local areas have adopted paid leave policies and even implemented policies to address work scheduling challenges faced by many service sector employees. So starting with you, Adrian, what is one or two policy changes that would have a big difference for direct care workers in terms of improving you know, not just the wage but the quality of these jobs and even the quality of the care they provide? 
So we don't spend a lot of time chasing the um, the federal minimum wage kind of issue. I feel like that's a never that would be a never ending thing. We'd always be chasing what it ought to be next. Um, I'd like to see the day when we're talking about caregivers earning, you know, a starting wage of twenty dollars an hour. So it's much m much more kind of interesting to talk about that where we live. Um, I think the Fair Labor Standards Act has gone taken a good first step in the in bringing caregivers under the minimum wage and overtime protections to which they were not entitled just uh, before 2015. That's a really, really great first step. Because we find that, um, that caregivers often work as contract workers rather than as employees. So it costs more to have an employee. And if you're a contract worker, you don't even have the benefits of getting your taxes paid, your vacation pay, your sick leave, and so on. Um, not to mention the retirement benefits, which by and large caregivers have never seen any anyway. So that would be a really, really good. We've already take. We've just recently taken a good first step. I think with the Fair Labor Standards Act. I think to really answer your question, if we uh, did proper classification of caregivers as employees the way they should be, um, if they're working for an agency, that would be a good thing to do. Great. Thank you. So, Lisa, on the same topic, what are one or two policy changes that would make a big difference for the workers that you're working with in terms of improving quality of jobs? Sure. So I'm going to mix it up a bit and, and not talk about the, the minimum wage. Um, one of the things that we learned early on, again, you know, picture that I'm working with a, a bunch of employers that are trying to do the best they can to give, have policies and practices that support their workers. And... Um, Oftentimes, one of, the, one of the big issues that comes up is that when an employer goes to give uh, an employee a, a, a wage increase, whether it be, you know, 50 cents, a dollar, that employee may not want that wage increase. And it's kind of a funny thing for employers to wrap their head around. But because it could potentially be something that denies that person maybe a child care subsidy, or maybe it is even uh, works against them financially in terms of a voucher for housing. So I, we spend, and again, we don't work in the world of government typically, but we have been very much focused on this thing called the benefits cliff, which really impacts employers when they are trying to do the right thing. Um, how do you help people move forward, uh, make them uh, be able to to shift um, and, 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 and take those increases, whether it be through a pay increase or maybe it's just differential pay to work overtime. Those things really impact, impact workers. So we need to figure out a way to do that better. I do want to say a second issue that I think is really important and one that in Vermont we have dealt with, and that is predatory lending, um, issues that get people in trouble uh, financially. I noticed as I was driving in payday loan um, storefront, uh, we have outlawed those in Vermont. Um, and so, uh, which I think is a really important part of this conversation because it is impacting uh, low-wage workers. The very first person we met through our resource coordination said, I need a loan to pay back a loan. And um, so we need to kind of do some of those policies and practices differently, both at the at the government level and um, at the federal level and at the state level. Great. 
And Walter, for you, as a company that, that already offers good jobs, Quick Trip might not be, seem to be affected by these types of policies. You already pay well among the minimum wage. You offer a benefit, benefits package. You probably offer a worker family scheduling. If policies like this became more prevalent, how would that affect you and your business and your company? You know, it actually has bearing effects because uh, you have our, our full-time workforce who are well above the mark, right? So that's never going to be an issue for them. And then you have our part-timers who are working for different reasons. They have different incentives as to why they're working and not full-time. Because going full-time is an opportunity for any of our employees. So our part-timers choose to be part-time. And they have different reasons to be part-time, whether it's going to school, whether it's just, like I mentioned earlier, just you know working enough hours to have benefits. Um, it becomes difficult for us to manage when you see different states start to implement different wage requirements rather than it being a one and for all type of increase because then we have to manage the varying wages from state to state and our employees look at that and because we really do try to listen to them they go hey well you know if Arizona is going to pay more as a starting you know wage then what about us here in Tulsa what about us here in Kansas City so those are the, some of the difficult landscapes that we have to navigate um, and we never want the wages and an increase in wages to come at the cost of benefits because we have such a large amount of employees who, who rely on our benefits, whether it's health, paid sick leave, our vacation times or any of those things. So uh, we look at it as our competitors will probably have to react quickly um, and we will just have to, you know, we always want to be paying at the top of the percentile of, of any of the, the um, levels that we have in our stores. So, um, again, that would just push us up even a little bit more. Excellent. Great. So for the next question, I kind of want to broaden the conversation from your specific examples to talk about what role can other stakeholders, such as companies, nonprofits, educators, what role can they play to help on this issue of improving economic stability and job quality? And this one's open, whoever wants to start out. I'll take it. Okay, well, I'll take it. I yep. mean, that's our model. Our model is really about bringing together all the stakeholders to figure this issue out. Um, in the nonprofit world, we call it collective impact. We, we're really interested in um, addressing this issue, uh, both in defining what the results that we want and what each stakeholder can play, whether it be an employer, whether it be the employees themselves, whether it be uh, nonprofits or uh, social services, state benefits, those things. Where do they where do they come into this conversation? So, um, I think to move this issue forward, it does take. Uh, I won't say it takes a village. Um, I, it takes it takes a collaborative effort. And I think it's really important that we start viewing it from that perspective. I also want to say to my colleagues in the nonprofit world, uh, we also need to kind of look in the mirror about how we offer what we offer. Do we do it from 9 to 5 when most people are working? Uh, do, can you get to services? Um, so those kind of issues really need to be addressed in this conversation. Excellent. Adrian, would you like to... Yeah, so what I learned from the Aspen Institute and also from your Federal Reserve Bank system, especially the Community Development Branch in Oklahoma City that's been so helpful to us, is that um, I was a little hesitant about this multi-sector kind of approach, um, you know, bringing together different sort of advocacy organizations from a lot of different industries. I just didn't know how that would play, how it would go over. But there's a lot of power in doing that because 
if your focus is on the low wage workers or frontline workers, you have a lot more in common with each other than you realize. You can start to see things from you know, similar perspectives, um, even though you're working in very different industries. So that's one thing I think of. And then the other is um, just the, the power of your message over and over and over everywhere you go. Everybody uh, everybody's knows or will be a caregiver in your lifetime. Um, so for us, that's one of our issues. So it's easy to talk to a banker. It's easy to talk to a funder in that regard. Um, every, everybody's experienced this. Everybody's had a sad story. Everybody's had a heartwarming story. Um, so just you know, the power of your message every day and everywhere you are. Walter, do you would you like to add in? Yeah, just as just a small note, you know, um, and uh, it's from the perspective of being a retailer, and uh, you know, we're in business to win, right? But part of what we believe we win with is our employees, and we, you know, we don't try to fudge around that at all. We we come out and openly say our employees are the reason why we can win. And with that mentality and philosophy, that means that we have to invest properly into that. And that means training. That means pay. That means pay time off. That means time off. That means benefits. And so if there's anything that uh, if anybody who watches or hears this can glean as, a, as another retailer out there, um, again, it's one of those things of whether you believe it or not, uh, it takes a lot of execution and a lot of patience, a lot of enduring time uh, in order to see the fruits of that. You know, like I said, we've been in business for 58 years. It's taken a long time of chopping wood uh, to, I feel, be where we are today and to be positioned where we are. Great. Okay, so before we're going to transition in a, in a few minutes for questions, so I hope you're all getting your questions ready. But so before we go, we're going to kind of have a lightning round where everybody gets a minute to kind of say <laughs> something that we haven't quite gotten a chance to say that you want to add in, and I'm actually going to go first, so I'm going to take a little prerogative. So I, as I hear this conversation about these jobs, and if you think back to the charts I showed at the beginning, this, this notion that we tend to hear when we read the newspaper is that, and I'm thinking I've, I have two daughters that are in middle school and high school, this idea about all kids need to be pushed to college to succeed. Well, the facts are right now 40% of jobs require college degrees. Those other jobs don't necessarily require a bachelor's degree, but they require training. They require going to get a certificate. They require going and doing an apprenticeship. So I think one thing I kind of wanted to make sure gets mentioned is I think we need to change our communication to say these are jobs we need for our economy. We value them. We should be trying to improve the way that we share. How do you go to these jobs? What skills do you need as opposed to just kind of steering everybody to one segment? So that's kind of the piece I want to throw in. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add in? This is lightning round, so one thing that hasn't... I, I do. This, this notion and kind of the, the um, title of this event, Raise the Floor, Build the Ladder, um, what I've said to um, Steve and other colleagues is the, never underestimate the power of a really simple, direct idea. I mean, this whole notion of, you know, you've got to have a foundation of stability before you can push people and encourage them and support them in going up a career ladder is such a simple idea, but yet so basic. And I think it really can take fire in all of your communities, probably, as something to just get excited about and get other people excited about. And it's not um, workforce development language, right? It's because um, that's its own language in and of, unto itself, as is education language. It's just plain, simple, direct. Here's you know, here's what we know about people, and here's what we know about the economies that we live in. Great, Walter. Yeah, I'd say. Um... Having been around 26 years, I've seen a lot of things. But one thing 
that I've come to recognize is that Quick Trip kind of have, has a place for anybody. So you can come in as a high school per person, and we have executives who actually started out as a high school student, right? And now they're a part of what's running the company because we were willing to be patient with them and teach them the skills and teach them the business and how to be good business people and how to connect with, the, with their communities. And with all those things, if, if an employee wanted to come in and just work nights and, work, and, and earn $45,000 a year, and that's really what satisfies them, we have a place for them there. If somebody says, I have more ambition than that and I want to do more, um, they can work the way all the way up to a director level or an executive level if they choose. Every one of our divisions and every market that we have that's run by a director actually started in the stores. We don't hire or promote from anywhere outside of our operations for operations. And so that's kind of like a secret sauce. It's like, well, if you want to move up, we're going to give you the opportunity and we're going to give you the training. Um, and you just kind of touch on the job skills like what you were talking about. Excellent. Lisa. <laughs> so I'm going to take this to a little bit of a personal level. Um, I'm a, I work full time. I'm a mom of three, uh, three kids. And one of the things that I think about every day is that my life is just about the same as every other working American. And um, the fact that uh, we kind of approach this from high-level jobs, mid-level jobs, and uh, low-wage jobs. Um, I had a bad month. I had a double whammy in the personal life category. And what happened was I was able to kind of step away from work for a month. I didn't lose my job. I kind of kept it going. And it really uh, was great to have an employer that supported me in that uh, month of time. I think that we need to remember that this is about people have aspirations. And work is more than a paycheck. It's about dignity. It's about um, really being able to live sort of the American dream. So um, I just wanna, wanted to bring it to that level for, for one minute anyhow. Excellent. Great. Okay, so what we're going to do now for the next 30 minutes is we're going to transition to questions. So for those here in Kansas City, we're going to have mics, so we're going to ask you in a second to raise your hand if you have a question. For those in our remote watch party audiences or, or live streaming from home, there should be a text number available that you can text your questions to, and those will get passed up to me. So let's start here in the audience. Are there any questions that we have? I see a couple hands going up. So how about um, we take three questions at a time? So let's start with three. Um, We'll get three people, and then we'll kind of have our, have our panelists answer them. So question number one. Hi. I oh. never know how loud to talk into this thing. Lisa, I have a question for you. The opportunity that your employees have to go into employers' places of business right. and discuss with them the needs that they have for their own employees to be successful how did you start that? How did you start that conversation? Right, right. Great. Okay, so let's take question two. So we'll take three and then we'll go. So I saw one over here. Do we have a mic? Oh, and, and you're ready. So you're ready, and then we'll get the mic over to the side. So go ahead. Well, I am, my question, I'm, my name is Chip Hillisheim. I work for the VA, and I'm, I work with homeless vets. So one of the things I haven't heard, at least a little bit, is just like the guys I work with, they have felonies, I mean, back child support, um, you know, lack of skills, lack of, in the benefits cliff. A lot of them, they just, you know, they see, they'll, they'll lose their benefits if they take a certain job. And, and Walter, you're an exception. Your company really is an exception rather than the rule. 
Um, a lot of people, a lot of the guys I work with and gals I work with have so many gaps in their work history. And when you go present them to an employer, it's, it's really, to them, it's, it seems insurmountable. And I just uh, wanted to kind of maybe get your take on that since you have an exceptional company. How is that for people that have, and the average age of the person I work with is probably 53. Um, so that's what I work with. And of course the transportation issues, but that's another rabbit hole. Um, but would you address that for me, please? I appreciate it. Okay, and then let's take a third question here and then we'll have everybody respond. Go ahead. My question is for you, I think, John. I work for an organization that invests in um, business and community development projects in low-income communities, and we prioritize investing in organizations that have high total compensation for low-income people. So, you know, living wage benefits, access to continuing ed, and all that. The other thing that is important to us is the preservation of small and medium-sized businesses in low-income communities. And I'm wondering if you're seeing anything in the data that suggests there's a tension there, like are in jurisdictions where increase in total compensation for low-income people is happening, is that correlating with consolidation and concentration in among the employers of those people? Okay, great. So how about we take Lisa, take the first question that was about opportunities for employees sure. to talk to employers. Sure. So you've asked about what we call resource coordination. And again, um, the way that came to be was first we set the table with with a lot of really good employers. And I, I always like to give a shout out to my employers. And if I had more time, I'd tell you who they all are. I know that um, you would recognize some of them. But uh, they're multi-sector. We have, we have some uh, uh, one employer from the direct health service uh, and we have you know the hospital and we have manufacturing and we have hotels and so um, but what we found from the early days was that people had issues that were getting in the way of them being able to get to work and be at work so the idea of sharing nobody could really afford to have somebody hire somebody to come to their workplace so we share uh, these resource coordinators and they are on site the same time at every um, uh, uh, employer, so they're you know they're at this company Rhino Foods, which makes the chocolate chip cookie dough that goes into Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, they, the, Lisa, one of the resource coordinator, goes there, and she has a schedule there, and she uh, is available to um, work directly with employees. So the idea was just sort of a dream that we've now started to grow, and we're growing it both in Vermont, and I have colleagues around the country, and I'll give them a shout out, that are also doing similar models, because we feel they're employed by us, not by the company, so it's all confidential, it's all, because employees feel weird about their employers knowing their issues. So, so that's how it started, we tried it, we tested it, it's working, and we're trying to grow it. Okay, so how about, I think the second question was towards Walter, in terms of thinking about addressing workers that may have come to a little more of a disadvantage when they come to the workplace. Right, and so it's, it's difficult for me to answer that in regards to how other employers may look at it, but I can, I can give you some context to how QuickTrip looks at it. So we don't turn away uh, prospective employees because of their history per se. We actually, we do tons of interviews. Um, we probably do 20 interviews for every one hire that we have, and that's because we really want to sit down and visit with the person and get to kind of get to know them. Gaps in work history, those kinds of things used to be a bigger deal to us than they are today. They're just not as big a deal, or it used to be that if your credit report came back bad. And, and those are things that we don't consider uh, the way we used to, because we 
even with our current employees, we know that life happens and people will find themselves in difficult situations. And so we try to take everything, even criminal records. And I know that sounds odd, um, and it depends on what it is because you have to deal with money. But um, we try to take everything into consideration because we want to just find the person who aligns with what we believe as a core value. Um, and if we can find that person, we believe we can teach them. Um, I think what we'll find more and more is what John indicated that these bottom, that b bottom tier jobs is expanding and that pool of employee, that's who they are. And so I think that employers have to be conscientious to find a place to help these people get uh, networked and plugged in so that they can contribute. Because as long as there's not a place to go, then get, there's no place to go. And so that's, you know, we, we work hard to try to, and I can tell you that 15 years ago, we didn't believe this way. But 2016, we do believe this way because we're finding that that's who we need to get in the doors because they are good people and life happens sometimes. And so we try to just overlook that and give them those opportunities and chances. And I hope that answered your question. Okay. Um, so on the third question, um, I think it's a great one in terms of trying to say, thinking about uh, groups that want to invest in business and community development to promote things along the lines of with live, jobs that have living wage and benefits, what does that look like, particularly for small businesses? And so in terms of the big, I can't speak directly to that, the, the initial facts all the way on size, but a big trend that we're seeing that economists nationally are looking at tied to issues like productivity is we see a lot fewer, like the number of new businesses being started, which are typically small employer, small businesses, that has been declining not just since the recession, but say over the past 10 to 15 years in terms of the national trends. So a question all of us are asking and trying to look at is, what is causing this slowdown in the number of people that decide to say, maybe they're working for a company, decide, I want to start out, start a new business, um, which in his, historically, it's those new businesses that tend to lead to the new ideas, new productivity, new jobs. So I'm not sure about all the reasons, and I would like to actually kind of turn it over to, to our panelists to talk about, but I think one piece that we look at is what are some of the frictions that we see now that are more and more important as you think about issues of jobs and benefits and packages that are higher cost than they were, say, 30 years ago, and one natural one is health care. So I don't know what the right solution, but economists, if we could major, wave a magic wand, we would disconnect health care from your job. And so I don't know how we get there, but I think now that health care costs are so much more important, that actually could likely you know, depress or whatever, slow somebody's idea to say, I'm going to leave a job with benefits to go start a new company, which is, might be what we need because of these other issues that are tied along. But I would love to have the panelists say, what do they see in terms of um, the, the kind of limiting the ability to see new firms or people with ideas go start co small company and provide good jobs. And I don't know if you see that in your industries or along those lines. Is that something that's no? I'm seeing. I'm, I may be going a little too. I'm not sure. I'm understanding your question, John. I guess is is do you see that in your areas that I like the idea of the cooperative that's mm -hmm. come up? Is what does it look like in terms of the current space? where we're at, what does it take for someone in these spaces to form a company where they may push for jobs that are better quality jobs? I think the cooperative is a great example, but we have to also see how that works. I think in my industry, in our state, I don't see good examples. I mean, health, the, this field of direct care is the fastest growing set of occupations in the country and the second fastest growing in New Mexico. But the, there are no barriers to entry, which yeah. makes for not a great uh, place where you'd want, you know, to to hold 
to hold these off and up as good examples. Okay. All right. Well, I think we'll go to, so I've got three questions that have come in from, from our remote audiences. So let's start with the first one is, how can we change the mindset that believes it's okay to provide minimum wages and not create uh, advances for personal development or opportunities for, for personal development while businesses are continuing to generate profit? Would anyone like to speak to that? I, I, I would just say it's, it's a... You, you have to look at business models and business models and the financial models. Most people believe in a different type of investment over long periods of time. Um, and we've had the luxury of being a privately held company for the whole time that we've existed. And with that, we can look at what our interests are without having to you know, report to Wall Street every quarter what you know, a $500 million investment might be. So we spent $100 million on security and if we were a publicly traded company, that would not be something that you would do because they would be asking, where's that return on invested capital and when do I get it back? And so we have this philosophy of, but it's gonna be better for our employees because they feel safer, right? So again, that's an investment in our employees and it's a different way of thinking and a different way of believing that we feel like we've proven that model out over time and still have been able to remain profitable. And so it's just that basic concept of who are you answering to with your financials? Right, and if and if that's the fundamental question, then they have to answer that. And I think that they're answering that question with their actions. Great, I've got an, oh, go an example yeah. that comes to mind is um, at our community advisory council meeting in uh, Washington D.C. My colleague here, Patrick Djokovic, and I talked about this. That you know, even though earlier I had said that we don't get in this conversation about the issues of the minimum wage. Our group as a whole said that we were heartened by the, the movement we see all over the country with regard to increases in the minimum wage in localities. So it sort of seems like an opportunity for the Federal Reserve Bank and the system, and maybe some of you could be just promoting that, these conversations at the local level. I mean, it's interesting. We do have three localities in our state of New Mexico that have uh, between a 10 and $12 minimum wage. Again, I think it's never going to be enough, um, and you're always going to be chasing it to the next one. But nonetheless, it's good that it brings people together above that minimum wage question, the current one, which you, was your question, I think. Yeah. All right. So two other questions that I'll kind of put together, and I think we'll let Walter take the first stab at this. So you're going to see the related themes. How does being a private company affect ability to provide good pay and benefits? along with how do we assist employers to allow them to provide livable wages? And they also added in, what's the average pay at Quick Trip? So I think this gets to the question of what are the other margins that actually make it in the employer's interest to kind of change their model, maybe along the lines of Quick Trip, to think about what are the benefits of lowering retention, having more loyal workforce, investing employees? But I'll let you... Oh, I think that the demand of keeping employees as your primary interest causes us to be innovative in a lot of different ways. And so we have to find margins or we have to find uh, dollars just creatively. For instance, we changed our entire benefits program. Uh, that's actually a better, they get a better benefit, but it's at a cheaper cost to them, cheaper premiums. And in order to do, so I, I'll, I'll use that it was roughly $2 million savings in one market in health benefits, and they got a greater benefit and lower deductibles because we were, we were able to be creative but that comes from the demand of saying, hey, well, there's only so much of this dollar that can go towards benefits, so you guys figure it out. 
Um, so being a privately held company, we have a lot more flexibility in coming up with things like that rather than um, just saying we're going to cut benefits. Right? So if your CEO comes to you and says, well, you can't cut the benefit, Walter, but you have to have a, be a better benefit that's cheaper, then that demand makes you creative. Right? And survival, there's this thing about trying to survive that you go, okay, you know, if that's the demand, then I think I, I can figure this out. Um, so that, that's a small way that, yeah. that I, I'd answer that question. Excellent. Um, Lisa or Adrian, do you want to weigh in? I, I, can, I, can I add something just from, yeah. a, from more of a small to medium-sized uh, employer uh, consortium of, of employers? You know, the, the cost for business to, to, do, to pay for somebody who's left to, to backfill that job is huge. And um, you can't run, you can't run um, direct care service uh, without without workers, you can't you can't run a hospital without people to clean um, the floors, and so employers. I, I think that sometimes we we take this from the perspective of it's all about the workers, but employers are at least the employers that I work with are really coming to the conclusion it is really good for business to come up with innovative like like what Walter said to come up with innovative ways to change work. Um, and those innovative ways, maybe when you're a large corporation, can maybe happen from within. But sometimes smaller companies, and I think it goes to your question about investment um, into some of these practices, it really does take a, a collaborative effort um, because a small manufacturing company of 100 just can't figure this out um, on their own necessarily. And then there's all these community partners that are trying to really help the people that you're employing. So that it really is a collaboration effort. And I just want to keep reemphasizing that, particularly for those businesses that you know employ anywhere from you know 50 to to a few, just even a few thousand. Great. And, and for Walter, come back. So they did, there was a specific question. Can you give a sense of for our audience what the average pay is for some quick trip oh. level jobs? Yes, our our just um, our night assistants make a little over forty thousand dollars a year. Uh, the next level up. So this is what I was talking about: the progression and promotion from within, depending on what it is you want to do. Um, the next level up pays right around fifty. The next one up from that is about fifty-five, and our store managers average about seventy-eight thousand. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. Okay, so we're ready for if there's some more questions from the audience. John, we have questions? one over here. Yeah, great. So I, I want to pick up on, on the questions about the benefit of being a privately held firm. Um, in the earlier comment that how rare it is that, that uh, organizations have the perspective of balancing uh, return on relationship with return on cash investment and return on long-term objectives, the really three components of, of a healthy workforce. And so my question really goes to, to the Fed and to the economists, because when I look at the graphs that you showed, uh, what I see is a homogenization of the challenge of having healthy uh, households, the idea that maybe wage and individual earnings are not uh, uh, the proper measure of, of effectiveness here. They obviously have a place, but at the end of the day, I think what most people at the, throughout the, the uh, economy are concerned about is, is my household viable? When you outlaw payday loans, that makes a tremendous difference in the viability of the household. So I guess my question goes to, I wonder if 
the economists aren't measuring things in 1985 terms when we're living in 2016 in a massively digital and connected age. So I'll, I'll start, and then if anybody else wants to weigh in, I would totally agree with your question, is that we spend a lot of time um, talking about are we really measuring the changes that are happening, the way technology is changing, how people live and how they interact, how they connect, how they perform work, and then in terms of lots of uh, the new things in terms of how, how we want to measure, economists call it uh, utility or welfare, but the problem is we don't have good data. So I would totally agree that we're stuck with a lot of the measures we've been using for a long time, and I, and I don't have a good answer other than economists are actively looking to answer that. Because I think you're right. Yeah, so I think we're just out there. We're in terms of talking, well, in terms of the, the government agencies, they're thinking about this very directly because they're in charge of census in terms of Bureau of Labor Statistics. They're in charge of measuring, and that's their mandate from Congress, is to measure the economy. So they're trying to figure out, say, for example, our traditional way of measuring things, um, say, employment, is by surveying households. So that's kind of our old tool. That surveying, you kind of get a sense everyone's over-surveyed, so we're not collecting as much good information about what's going on. We're just having to be creative. So I don't have the answers other than lots of people are working on this issue, and it's very critical. Because if things are shifting and we don't measure it right, you're exactly right. We're not going to capture it. Okay, so I saw, I see a question over there and maybe a gentleman up here. So let's take these two questions and then we'll ask, answer them together. Um, hi, my name is Classy and I work for Goodwill and our mission is to empower people with different abilities and disadvantages to earn and keep employment here in Kansas City. And I had a follow-up question for Lisa. You had mentioned um, the resource co coordinator who goes to the employers and sort of navigates for the employee. Can you share like a great success story of the outcome that you've seen from, from that experience? And let's take, the, let's take the second question then we'll answer them both. So please. Yes, my name is. Uh, we have a home health company, and one of the areas that we've been concerned with for over the is how from the government, most of our people in the low-income areas come from the governmental uh, housing or, or the governmental um, funding. Uh, we're at the point now where we've pushed to get them as far as we can go, and that's it. And it's like, where do we go from here? And, and, and uh, that's, that's a, a big issue that we would love to solve because we have to keep our people. If not, they'll jump to another, another field. And so I've even come to the conclusion of maybe starting another, another business uh, somehow to fund more money into so that we can go up. So that's a question I'd like to ask. How, how do you handle that? So why don't you take that first, Adrian, and then we'll come back to Lisa's question. Sure. The thing that comes to mind for me first is this, uh, we're, we're working on the same issue and probably it'll be around legislation at the state level this year. And I think what you're talking about is the in increase in reimbursement rates. Yeah. Okay. So it turns out that there are a lot of parties, a lot of stakeholders that have that issue in common that want to see that happen. What the employers in our state want is the better reimbursement rate so that they can um, pay their folks better. I think what our insistence will be is that there be something built in that talks about a wage pass-through because we'd like to make sure it goes to the workers. Um, but I think you'll find that you probably have a lot of people from multiple, you know, multiple stakeholders who will get, who will help you do this and take it to the state legislature. Yeah. 
All right, Lisa, I want to take the first question. So, so the only thing that I, I, I have people who do this work and we hear these stories and they're fabulous stories, but the one that I would say that when, we, when we're like doing the dance and celebrating is when we bring people from sometimes being a, in a place of homelessness to a place of, of housing. I, I would say that those are probably the best stories um, that we have. Um, because it really does change somebody's life. Um, life. I do want to add that one of the tools that we've added to the toolbox, and it kind of goes back to your question, is around um, instead of these these payday lenders, is we've we've created this thing called the Income Advance Loan, which is a whole product that we do through employers in relationship with credit unions, so that if somebody has an emergency, employers don't want to be handing out. Um, advances on pay and things like that. Walter, you can speak to this. Um, but we've created this, this product that has now been scaled nationally where we're really trying to help people. And for the resource coordinator, that is a really key product in, the, in their toolbox to help people who might have a, an emergency situation that might range from the hot water heater broke down or the furnace doesn't work, and in Vermont that matters, to putting tires on a car or, um, or maybe being a down payment, or uh, not a down payment, but a, a you know a, a month's payment for for a new rental or something like that. So, so I have a few more questions from our remote audiences, and this also kind of follows up for Lisa. How do you determine the issues to be discussed in your innovation labs? How do we follow up on those How issues? How do you determine them? How do you determine, do determine what them? things sure. you're going to try and address? Sure, sure. It really is driven by a lot of what we hear and learn through the resource coordination. So we track all that data. Um, the people who started Working Bridges were, were uh, brilliant about making sure we, we really kept data on the employees we dealt with in, the, in a very confidential way. But that drives a lot of what um, we do in the innovation lab. But I would also say that employers drive it. They, you know, their issues that are, that they see, whether it be a retention issue um, um, or, or other issues, those are the, those are the drivers of why we do what we do. All right. Next question from the audience, uh, from our remote audience. I think we'll have Walter kick this off. So the question is, has there, have there been any re return on investment studies done on these programs? So I think, think thinking with QuickTrip in mind, I mean, the, the example of the return on investment is how successful it is. But is there a way to measure that and proxy what uh, it's a great idea to say, I want to have workers and pay them good wage and do all this, but then to turn that into a profitable company? How do, how do we measure those things when we see them in society that lines up also with what QuickTrip is right. doing? Um, so I think you can, if you, if you were to look at everything as a whole, uh, you just look at profit margin, right? So you go, okay, how much do we have in profit? What's their adjusted gross after that? You know, so you're looking at top line, bottom line. Okay, so that's just the way you look at business. But we can break it down individually. For instance, uh, health benefits. So what did we get out of it by the change we made? So if we save, I'm just going to throw this out there, $6 million a year, then obviously that helps, right? So we understand that metric. If we say that our turnover goes from, which it roughly was, in the 90th percentile of turnover, we, we were turning about 90-something percent back in the early 90s to now today, it's 22 percent. That's tangible. That's physical dollars. Because for every person that we turn, it costs us 2,500 to 3,000. So if we shrink that turn with now that we've grown into 20,000 employees, and you count that up over time, then you say by reinvesting into the employees and having them stay longer and having to do less training, initial training and initial training, 
then you do get dollars back over the long haul. So that's probably the quickest way to answer that without belaboring it, because uh, we can get into a lot of detail. Great. So. Thank you. Um, Lisa, do you have anything to add on that topic? Or? No. Okay. All right. Um, so one other question is that uh, this is, was addressed to Lisa and Adrian, if, you, if you'd like to comment. What is the best research and resource around the benefit cliff issue? Is something off the top of your head you have something to speak to or how to think about the getting some resources to address it? So I'll take a little bit of a stab at it. Some of the states have, um, they keep data. And in Vermont, we do. We have like a basic needs uh, budget that is regulated by state legislation that's, that's uh, done each year. Um, I've been doing this work now for six years, and this is really a, a tough, nugget to crack. And I think partially because we are not doing a great job of trying to figure out how can you advance workers without having them drop off this cliff. And there's, um, oh, I'm spacing the name of it, but there is a uh, poverty uh, organization that is based in Vermont, but it's, I think it's affiliated with Columbia University. And um, they're doing, I think, the best research around the benefits cliff. And a couple of things, I think of uh, Restore the Promise of Work. It's right on the table back here. Um, some resources from the Aspen Institute. And then I think of um, CLASP, also the Center for Law and Social Policy in Washington, D.C. Okay. All right. Thankful. Thank you. So do we have any other questions? We have a few minutes left. Any other questions from the audience here in Kansas City? See a question over here. We got a microphone. Thank you. I'm a brother of this guy sitting here. I'm an environmentalist, and my reason for coming was because of the uh, words that were on the on the uh, flyer to get us here that said that uh, in the next decade, the top 30 jobs, uh, 23 of them will only require high school education or less. That scares us. I just left a meeting at EPA, and I brought that up to them as a topic because that means that we're looking at almost like a reservation in your inner city. I want to know, is there any consideration being given by any of the people sitting up there of how we can approach that problem? Well, I understand the partnership, the collaboration, and all that, and that's why I was out there this morning. But that's, that's dreadful to think of. And I was just wondering, what are your reactions to that? I mean, since it was on the flyer. Would anyone like to yes. jump in on that one? Uh, yes. You know, in, um, in Japan, there are robots right now. I think sometimes of Japan as an economy that in my more pessimistic moments, we might look like one day. Um, in Japan, robots are taking the place of caregivers. I cannot imagine that in this country. So one of the things I was asking John here last night, in fact, was the trend line that he was showing for those middle-skilled jobs going away uh, you know, being pushed out over time. I hope that trend doesn't continue, but I don't, I don't see the other side of it. I don't see the answer for it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, any other questions? Yes, we have a question here. Thank you very much for that question. Thank you. I wonder um, if there's any consideration I hear every now and then the idea of having a 
a minimum salary or a minimum amount of money that citizens are paid and then what they earn at their job is on top of that. Would that be a way to address an employer's or society's inability to keep wages going up enough to make uh, life affordable, a decent life, uh, not a subsistence level life available to Americans so that we have more of a middle class rather than a growing underclass? Is that feasible? I often think that's the, that's the only next outcome is a, what they call a basic income. I think in, in Sweden and some of the Scandinavian countries, the arguments that I've heard against that are that those are much smaller countries than ours, but I don't see any reason not to talk about it and get started. <laughs> I would add to a certain degree we have some of that already. I mean, when I talk about um, resource coordination, what we're, what we're coordinating around are some additional um, income supports, accessing in income supports. And that looks um, like it could potentially be a child care subsidy or a housing subsidy or, or food. It could, be, um, it could be food stamps. And these are working Americans who are accessing that. Little different than what you're talking about, but we essentially have that safety net in place because it, it requires a certain amount of income to be able to provide the most basic needs for families. And I'll add in one, one policy that hasn't come up that does play a partial role, it doesn't fully address that, is the earned income tax credit, where there are incentives that go to work. And I think the one positive, when economists value these trying to evaluate what, what are the better options. The earned earn income tax credit, that spreads the burden across all taxpayers, whereas if you're just raising the minimum wage, okay, if the employer can pay a higher wage, that's great, but if the employer can't pay the higher wage, you may be you know, squeezing that to that job going away. The earned income tax credit is one way to partially spread that, and that as a society decision, and we have, we have to decide what we want to do. So another question in the back. Um, my question is, you've been talking about the middle jobs are declining um, at a rapid rate, and then the lower in income or the lower class jobs are rising. The higher uh, class jobs are also rising, but the pay for the higher uh, class jobs is declining. Um, what are your thoughts as far as those who are uh, right now who are in school who are trying to get the higher class, but they're actually getting the middle class jobs. Yes, I think that's a key challenge in terms of this idea of saying the, on, the, only, like the only path to a successful thing, if people say you have to go to college and then try and get the job, well, that's great if it works out for you. But now the costs, given that costs are being shifted to students in terms of big student loans, if that path isn't really your path, but you're just going down the road and it fails, you're left with a lot of student loan debt. So my sense is we want to get a broader conversation about telling kids you need to get a skill and then have the options of skills for them to go. So if the push is everybody go to college, it's not going to add up. There aren't enough jobs. But if the push is you need to find yourself a skill, look, you know, try things out in high school, maybe have more vocational training options, 
figure out whether that is you're going to go get in a, a certificate to be an HVAC person where you go get a certificate, you do two years of training, you end up in a job that pays $70,000 a year. There's lots of opportunities to get jobs, even, even if the opportunities are shrinking, that pay a very good salary. I think we just need to broaden that conversation because we definitely don't want to steer everyone to think they have to go to college. One more. We have last question. We're going to go last question here. Okay. okay uh, thank you. Uh, tremendously uh, appreciated the format today. But I would just like to kind of throw out uh, uh, thoughts out loud about the uh, HUD, uh, Harvard University dining uh, workers and their strike inside the campus when several months ago they were announcing Harvard had broke records with their endowment, their capital campaign, and now the workers are striking who work in the dining hall. And the material is saying, the information is not that uh, the cost of living for where the workers live is increasing and escalating so high until they can't afford to be at work in the dining hall at one of the most prestigious prestigious universities in the world. And then that's a thought out loud question. And the other thing is I had uh, hoped that today's presentation would discuss some of the 92 million American citizens who are severely and chronically unemployed, including many veterans. And so I just wondered if I could just throw that out for thoughts out loud, if, that is, if that's okay. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Anyone like to comment on those? I think the Harvard University uh, food worker strike is a, a fine example of what we're talking about today. And it's also a fine example of these multi-sector kind of responses that we could take in communities. Our, our folks share more in common with the food service workers than they do with you know, workers in middle skill occupations. And our fight is their fight. And um, so I think that's a good thing to be outraged about. It also brings to mind in the same article that I read, uh, uh, they showed us a side-by-side -side, uh, caregivers unable to retire at age 71. She has no retirement money, nothing. She's, she thinks she'll work until, until she dies because she has no choice. I can't, I don't have a solution, I just, I hear your question. You know, anyone else want to weigh on that before we close? I'll just add in terms of the second part of the question, like another key lining up of the statistics are showing clearly, particularly among men, prime age men, there has been a steady decline over the last 50 years in terms of the fraction of men who are actively participating in the workforce. And that definitely is a large concern for society in terms of we do best when people find quality work and they're productive in society, and it is a critical issue. So I, I agree to the issue, and I wish I had a better answer, but we're definitely one we need to talk more about. So with that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite Vicki to come up here to close our panel. Wonderful. Thank you. Can we all give them a great round of applause? thought this was a terrific conversation about how all workers have value.
And if we're gonna be true to our American values, we will treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And that will show in their pay, in their benefits, in their scheduling, in listening to their worker voice. I thought we had some great examples of that up here. So thank you, John and Adrian and Walter and Lisa. We really appreciate the conversation. Uh, you too uh, can follow the conversation on Thursday in that Twitter chat that I mentioned earlier, 3.30 Eastern time. Uh, just follow at Aspen Workforce. For those of you on Twitter, you know that lingo. And the hashtag is TalkGoodJob. So we look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. If you want to follow other Working in America events, uh, look to on the internet, as.pn backslash working in America. And you can be on the flip side. When we do these in Washington, D.C., you can be in the live stream texting your questions or Twittering your questions or whatever. Um, so thank you again uh, for your uh, participation today, your excellent questions. We really appreciate it. I am now going to turn it over to Steve Shepelwich, who is the Senior Community Development Officer with the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank and the Oklahoma City branch. And we're all going to turn to our small group discussions at this point. So bye-bye, folks out there in the virtual audience. We'll see you later.